0: Moncrief on News Talk. Now, as James was telling us yesterday, Masters of the Air is the title of a new World War II drama on Apple TV. And the series is based on a book gleaned largely from the accounts of the actual men who flew those planes. Donald Miller is the author of Masters of the Air America's Bomber Boys Who Fought the Air War Against Nazi Germany. Donald, good afternoon to you.
1: Good afternoon to you. Uh, could you uh,
0: the, the the guys who flew those planes? And I suppose it's, it's it's something. Maybe you don't even get from looking at the series. How old
1: were they? Well, between the ages of about nineteen and twenty-five, most of them were in their early twenties.
0: Yeah, so very young. And 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 how experienced could they have been as pilots?
1: Not at all. They're all volunteers, for one thing. Ninety percent of the guys who flew with the Eighth Air Force—that was their unit. Stationed in England and East Anglia, ninety percent of these guys had never been in an airplane before. Uh, well, let, alone, let alone fighting the Germans at twenty-five thousand, you know, at uh, uh, at five miles high.
0: And 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 so in in advance, how much knowledge did they have of, if you like, the riskiness of the of the particular assignment they were given?
1: Almost none. Um, it wasn't conveyed, and uh, it was too depressing. The, um, the American Air Force uh, began bombing Germany in the summer of forty-two, a summer after Pearl Harbor, and the 8th Air Force began that bombing. And uh, the first mission was a cakewalk. Um, they lost no one, a broken windshield from a bird flying into the windshield. Hmm. Uh, two weeks later, every man on that crew was dead. Uh, the casualties stacked up staggeringly. Um, and and that's what kind of drew me to the story. I mean, the unbelievable slaughter that the Eighth Air Force suffered in the sky. Usually, you think, oh, a bomber movie, bombs dropped on so-called innocent citizens and things like that. But there are two sets of victims in this bomber war: the uh, the people who are bombed or under the bombs, uh, German um, military installations, civilians, and who are close to them. And and the other victim, of course, are the bomber crews, and they suffered. Well, 8th Air Force lost twenty-six thousand men. Now, that's killed. Put that into perspective: the United States Marine Corps in the whole war from Guadalcanal to Okinawa suffered nineteen thousand casualties.
0: My word!
1: Now, and- if you if you got to if you got to your eleventh mission, usually you flew twenty-five at the beginning, later thirty-five. If you got to to your eleventh mission, you were on borrowed time. You were, in effect, a dead man.
0: Good grief. And was this largely, Donald, because these missions were all carried out during the day?
1: Well, it had a lot to do with it, but the British suffered as well. 55,000 dead out of 110,000 who flew with bomber command. So the Germans had good night fighters and excellent uh, long range cannons with uh, artillery, uh, you know, massive artillery and searchlights and radar. But uh, flying in the daylight was definitely more precarious than flying at, uh, than flying at night. Uh, there's no foxholes in the sky. There's no place to take ev- evasive action. And they were ordered to go straight to the target. No 8th Air, Air Force mission was ever turned back. Now, some turned back because of mechanical difficulties, but they were never punched back, as it were, by the Germans. And when they got to the target, there was a lot of flying flack, um, German 88 guns fired enormous shells into the sky. If they missed the bomber, they burst, created a thousand sharp steel shards that floated in the air. And the whole air atmosphere over the target was saturated with flak. And you had to fly straight and level so that you could bomb accurately, straight and level, so you had a platform to bomb accurately. Yeah. They couldn't take evasive action. And imagine being a bombardier in a plexiglass nose of one of those B-17s, sticking your head into an instrument called a Norden bombsight, which is an aiming device, and not being able even to see the flak, which is, in effect, sometimes two and three feet in front of you. Uh, In some respects, Sean, these were, in the beginning, uh, suicide missions. Um, And in total, for the war... Seventy-seven percent of the men and boys who flew with the Eighth Air Force were casualties.
0: My word! The uh, the, the planes themselves, you know, the, the, they were called flying fortresses. I assume that was just yeah. that was just a bit of marketing.
1: Well, they look like fortresses on the ground. Uh, it's an imposing-looking plane. It's a beautiful war plane, and uh, it has eleven machine guns, fifty-caliber machine guns, and. Uh, Pretty powerful gun, and if you flew them, the theory was if you could, if you, if you could fly above the clouds, and most of them could, the seventeens, if they weren't overloaded with bombs, you could outrun the fighters and not have to worry about the German fighters. But that was a myth. There were a lot of myths. No one factored in the uh, merciless weather over, uh, over the targets, um, constant, perpetual cloud cover. Which prevented you from seeing the enemy, which prevented you from seeing your targets, and uh, and the cold. The cold killed more than the Germans did in the first six months of operation. Uh, the cold in road. the planes. I mean, uh... inside the plane is unheated, and uh, there are two gun portals on the, in, the, in the fuselage that are open to the air, where gunners stand at their at their large machine guns, their swivel guns. And so there's a cold blast coming through the plane. It was a little warmer in the cockpit because you got some engine heat. But uh, over Germany in February, uh, it was generally about 55 to 60 degrees below zero inside the plane. Oh, wow. So frostbite, you know, takes down an awful lot of guys. And the Air Force wasn't prepared for that. This is, you got to remember, this is the first bomber war in history. Uh, there had never been one before, and there would never be one again. Rocketry and atomic bombs mm. and whatnot would take place. So everything that is learned is learned on the spot. It's uh, it, it's an experiment in, uh, in you know in destruction, and uh, the guinea pigs are the flyers.
0: Yeah, and well, so how, how did they solve that problem about the coach, or did they?
1: Well, they never really did, but they equip the men better. They uh, originally had electric suits, but they shorted out very quickly and like an old fashioned Christmas tree of 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. If one light went out, the whole tree went out and um, they fixed that. And um, so that provided some warmth and uh, you were dressed in sheepskin, several layers. Um, when you hit the flak field, you had a helmet um, with ear flaps, uh, steel ear flaps so that you could keep your microphone to keep your earphones on and communicate with the pilot. Um, and they had things called flak vests. Um, you take a leather, uh, apron and you stick, you know, heavy steel in there and you wore that and that extended about down to your groin area. Some guys took scraps of steel and sat on it to protect, you know, their, you know, what's mm. and uh, from a, a burst of flak or a bomb coming up below the plane. So um, those were those were the... And they flew in tight formations, believing that um, a combat wing of airplanes flying wing to wing, with those, each of them with 11 machine guns, would be enough to ward off the Luftwaffe. It wasn't. The Germans came right in on them, um, attacked at what we would call closing speeds of 600 miles an hour. The bombers going about 300 and the German fighters going over 300. And they went right into the formations. The difference between this and ground combat is, is the suddenness of the attacks. Um, they, they, they came on with electric intensity and and they hit hard. They had machine guns. They had cannons. And they also had air to air rockets. So, uh, and they went right into the formation and tried to break it up. Yeah. Generally, though, they didn't follow the bombers into the flak field. They waited outside it, hit them beforehand, and then hit them coming out of the flak field. So you had three zones of dangers uh, just before the target, over the target, and on the return to England or Ireland.
0: Uh, and if if a B seventeen was shot down, was that survivable for the crew?
1: Well, in some cases it was. It was a durable plane. It had a light skin, and you would think that would make it, you know, perilously vulnerable. You could a, a strong man with a with a screwdriver could drive a hole through the fuselage, and so the flak penetrated the plane. There's no bulletproof points on the plane. But the plane could really take a beating. It had an excellent steel frame where the aluminum hung from the frame. And so you could really get take some major hits, six, seven holes in your plane. Huh. The problem was if you knocked out one, two, three of the guns or the rear stabilizer, i.e. the tail, then you ran in some trouble. If you knocked out one of the guns, you were slowed down. The Germans generally picked on those crippled planes isolated because they were isolated from the formation they couldn't keep up and they were dead ducks yeah the amazing thing the amazing thing to me is you know and one of the things about the film is this is probably the the most savage combat in all of history um and generally i came into this book and into this film thinking oh the airmen flying way up above the clouds unseen pressing buttons and bombing civilians well, it wasn't that way at all. This was very personal. As I said, there's no foxholes in the sky. You're fighting nose to nose with the German fighters who attacked on al six, seven in a row in a line straight at you, aiming directly for the front of the plane where the pilots were. Yeah, Hundreds of pilots were beheaded by German cannons. So the amazing thing, we, we do most of the film and I do most of the writing about combat in, you know in my book. In, from inside the plane, not like in a Tom Cruise film where you see dogfights and things like that. There's a lot, there's some of that action outside, g- generally, but by and large, we're trying to focus on the crews, the peril, the extreme danger they suffered in it, and how they stood up to this, and sometimes broke down. Yeah, and I, I'm telling uh, you how, you how they how they get the, how they get in the planes. Yeah, how did they get in the planes yeah. the next day? When they suffered those kinds of casualties, and Donald, they the, saw it.
0: yeah, can I just ask you though, Donald, about because you know you spoke to families and 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 uh, first-hand accounts uh, for for those who managed to survive this and came back home to the states, I assume they were pretty damaged by the experience of all this as well.
1: They were, and it happened in England immediately. There was a thing called, you know, obviously flak and. The idea of flying out of control mentally was called being flack happy. And uh, this is post-traumatic stress disorder. And it came on rather suddenly. Usually through, not through, there was a difference between combat soldiers on the ground in the mud and rain and airmen at 30,000 feet. Airmen suffered breakdowns through traumatic incidents. Combat soldiers, infantrymen suffered through longevity. It's The grind, the long grind of combat. Generally, after about hundred and fifty days on the line, you were done. You were a ragman, as the army called them. In the air, one traumatic incident, say a uh, a plane losing its uh, losing its tail and spinning out of control and crashing. Um, the, uh, the amazing thing is, they sent those guys up the next day. Uh, I had an airman who flew. In the rear of the plane, he was a tail gunner, and uh, his name was Sherman Small, and the plane got hit hard and and severed. The Germans would sometimes use suicide tactics and break the planes in half, and then, unlike the Japanese, though, the German pilots would bail out, uh, land, and then get another fucker wolf or Messerschmitt, and up they go again. But Sherman Small was trapped in the rear of the plane, and uh, just the tail on its own was spinning out of control to the ground, the rest of the plane and another part of the sky and dropping from three miles high. He amazingly lived. But what is equally amazing to me is the air force sent him up, you know, the next week. And, uh, that tail started to shake on that mission because of the wind. And, um, he said, that's the last thing he remembered for a couple of years. Um, they took him to an army medical hospital. They had them all over England, and they had a special psychiatric unit that practiced air medicine, including psychiatric medicine. There were so many breakdowns, and uh, they were unable to cure him, and he went into a coma and had to be sent back to the states. My word,
0: Donald, we do have to leave it. It. <laughs> I, I, we have to leave it there. I'm afraid. I, I'm so sorry that, but such a vivid portrait there that uh, you. you I uh, hope the rest of the Apple TV series lives up to that. Uh, that was Donald Miller, their author of Masters of the Air America's bomber, bomber Boys Who Fought the Air War Against Nazi Germany. Moncrief, weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.